Hi everyone, this is Sarhat. My guest today is Josh Frank. He's the co-founder of The Tie, which is an information services provider for digital assets. Hi Josh, welcome to The Curious Learners. Thanks for having me on. Maybe we should define what data means for crypto. Obviously, there is transaction data on-chain or otherwise, but also non-transactional data, which is equally interesting for the platform and for your clients. How do you define that? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if I know how to define data per se, but I mean, speaking about the different types of data that exist in crypto, you know, it's really interesting and it certainly has expanded over time. As I think about the different types of data that exist in crypto, to your point, there's on-chain data. And that's super exciting. And I'd love to kind of get into that more later if you want. But on-chain data, sentiment data, there's news, there's market data, which is pricing data. There's derivatives data, which is basically pricing data on derivatives. There's NFT data. There's company fundraising data. There is research. There's so many different types of data that exists in the crypto market. Obviously, in equity markets, you have actual fundamentals, which I think this space lacks. But there, there are so many different ways that you can go about you know, analyzing and understanding the value of digital assets. And I think this is such an immature market that just, you know, continues the opportunities and ability to analyze and understand this market are continuing to expand over time because there's just no broadly accepted way to quantify the value of these assets. And so I think we're still just in chase of that, trying to bring in new, interesting alternative data sets. But to your point, the way that I broadly define it is on-chain data, which is the actual raw blockchain data and off-chain data. And I think they're equally important because, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but you know, you cannot try to figure out why a price of an asset is moving because of one data point. It's impossible, right? It's a, it's always a combination of different factors and different metrics. In your experience with the tie, what is the most difficult to access in this huge data pool? So on-chain data is certainly the most difficult. And the reason that it's the most difficult is the data structure is very different for different chains. Right. And so, you know, I don't know how, you know, where your listeners sit in terms of a crypto experience, but I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. You have Ethereum, which is one of the, the major layer one blockchains. And there are a number of assets that are what, what's called EVM compatible, which means they're compatible with the Ethereum virtual machine. Supporting those assets for on-chain data is relatively easier because the data structure is all the same. However, there is not a single company in crypto that supports blockchain data for Ethereum, Cosmos, Solana, you know, Litecoin, Bitcoin, you know, all of these different chains, because the data structure for all of those different chains is very different. The way that transactions are defined is very different. You know, the way that the actual, like the entire structure of the data set, you know, when you connect to the node is very different. And so the challenge is, first of all, just building connectivity to these different disparate chains, but it's figuring out how to build standardized metrics across those chains because is the definition of a transaction on Solana. I mean, that's why like people always argue on Twitter how many transactions blockchains like Solana and Avalanche actually have because the definition for what actually makes up a transaction is very, very different. So I would say in terms of getting broad support, like the thing about sentiment, for example, right? Obviously, we think we have great sentiment data and we do a lot of it in-house and we build some of our own proprietary models, but you could use a GPT-3 sentiment model and just feed a bunch of tweets into it, right? And output some level of sentiment. It wouldn't be that difficult, but actually figuring out you know, and, and by the way, I think, and I think you're going to, you're going to get into this later, but there's a really big difference between data and signal, right? And part of it is how difficult is it actually to get the data out of it? And the second part of it is how difficult it is to actually drive a signal once you've kind of pulled the data, but, but the most difficult data is really built building unified cross-chain data. 
Hence, you know, there is all these startups which are trying to turn that raw blockchain data, turn it into a human readable form, because as it as it stands right now, it's really difficult, it looks like. But yes, that's actually my next question for you. You know, pulling that data is one thing, however difficult it is, but interpretation is even more critical. You characterize it as signal and I had it as, as market intelligence in my question, but I think I guess it's the same thing. What's the process of converting that raw data to signal? It depends. Depends what you mean by signal, right? So there's signal in, you know, we sell data to a lot of the largest quant funds in the world. And, you know, for them, actually, it's they just want access to the raw data because they're way smarter than I am and they're way smarter than my team is. And that's why they're managing a $50 billion quant fund, right? And so, you know, they want access to as much raw data as possible. You know, they don't want our version of manipulated data. They want access to the raw data to find their own signal. And signal lies at the intersection of a large number of data sets, right? For certain assets, certain assets will be very driven by exchange flows. Other assets, probably not driven at all. Certain assets will be very driven by sentiment. Other assets, you know, not driven at all. And, and a huge part of identifying signal, at least in a quantitative sense, is basically just training models to help them find the signal for you, right? And being really good at training models and understanding, you know, you know, and the most important thing in finding signal, by the way, is having really high quality granular raw data. And, and what I mean by that, one of the major things that we have at the tie is news. But by news, I don't mean news stories from Coindesk and from, you know, the Fortune and from Forbes. I mean, every single SEC filing going back five years, every single regulatory rolling from two, you know, from a 2000 regulatory jurisdictions every update directly from their projects. So their medium posts, their blog posts, their forum posts, every update from exchanges, from OTC desk, from all of these primary sources. And, and when we think about signal, right, and converting data into signal, the most important thing is that you need to have point in time data, right? Which means that you cannot now go back. Somebody can't go back and pull the entire history of that data set, right? Because what happens is posts get deleted, blogs get removed, people change the text, right? And if you're trying to build a model that identifies signal, right? You can't have bad rewritten data because you'd want to know, hey, how would my model have actually performed at that exact point in time, three years, seven months, and four days ago, right? And so, you know, the first important input is making sure you have really clean raw data, right? With blockchain data, that's actually much easier because with blockchain data, whether you've been running an Ethereum node for seven years or seven minutes, you actually have access to the same data, right? That's the whole idea of a blockchain, right? It's this public open distributed ledger. And so with off-chain data, it's actually much harder to have clean data. On-chain data actually is incredibly clean because it's the actual fact of what happened on the chain at a period of time. So there's two, there's two parts to where I was going. The first is on the quant side, right? And so they need to have really good raw inputted data that they can basically build into models and make sure that there's no bias in those models, right? And make sure also that they're not curve fitting, right? It's really easy to take a data set and I could take any data set you send me and make it produce 50,000% returns in the past, right? Super easy to do. You just slightly change the input. You're like, oh, well, I noticed if you bought it when this metric was at 77 and sold it when it was at 77.2 and then bought it again at 70. Like, you can skew data all you want, right? But you have to make sure that you know, when you're working with data, you're not introducing that bias, right? And you're and you're making sure that you're not overfitting the data set. So that's on the quant side. On more of the discretionary side, right? You know, there, there's a couple different ways to think about signal, right? Or or market intelligence. There's you know, there's trading opportunities, and then there's risk identification. And so that's broadly how I kind of split them up. And and look, a lot of it requires a tremendous amount of creativity, 
right? And, and, and being in novel ways of thinking about what is signal. So an example of that, one of the things that we track at the tie, which I don't believe anybody else tracks, is developer migrations. So we send active alerts and signals to our clients when developers stop working on a particular project and start working on others. So I can tell you, for example, the number one developer on ThorChain who had made 1,300 commits and never committed to another project started committing to Osmosis about a month ago. And we're seeing a massive flow of developers into, you know, into Osmosis and into Cosmos, right? Again, like, you know, I think that's a really interesting signal, whether or not in a quant model that would backtest as a signal is one thing or another thing, because there are no fundamentals, right? When I say there's no fundamentals, there's no broadly accepted fundamentals, right? People are trying to come up with them, but no one, you know, fundamentals aren't really fundamentals unless people accept things, right? The reason technical analysis works isn't because drawing lines on a chart is, is the most pretty thing. It's because enough people believe that drawing lines on a chart works, right? And so, you know, with this data, right, it's, it's being very creative, right? And it's thinking, okay, as an investor, and I think you'll appreciate this, right? If all the development talent is moving towards a particular project, that likely is a bullish sign for that project, right? Other examples of ways that we've creatively thought about Signal, you know, one of them is we're actually tracking on chain what we believe to be addresses of employers. And we're basically looking at wallet addresses that every two weeks or every month say, send an amount of a particular asset to a number of addresses, right? So imagine a Uniswap wallet is sending a little bit, and I'm not saying we're tracking Uniswap, but sending, you know, Uniswap to the same 40 addresses and the same amounts every two weeks, every month. Well, that looks like an employer sending payroll, right? And then you think about, okay, if all the employees receiving those are net buying assets one month instead of selling to pay their bills, they're probably know something that we don't know that's probably insider trading, right? That's a signal, right? And so, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of creativity and thinking, right? A lot of people, a lot of people just accept what's been given to them in crypto as signal, right? Like all of these metrics like tvl and metrics like you know whatever multiple and 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 x and y and z or whatever and we're like whoa, whoa, whoa wait let's take a step back here and let's think about and by the way a lot of how we think about signal is in context of traditional capital markets and so when we talk about employee selling i'm actually thinking about 13f filings which are basically you know insider trading filings right so the way that we think about signal and crypto is really not novel it's really how can we take traditionally accepted signals and bring them into crypto. And the most amazing thing is there's no what's called alpha decay in crypto yet. And for anyone who doesn't know, alpha decay is basically the concept of if enough people know about a signal, it's no longer a signal and the alpha from that signal will decay, right? So I'm not giving you guys all of the secrets that we have, obviously. But, you know, in crypto, we don't really struggle from alpha decay yet because, you know, no one has explored these things, right? You may have not even heard of these two ideas that I just proposed. They are certainly new to me, Josh. But maybe I should go back and ask this question again because I thought signal and market intelligence would be the same thing. But perhaps there's another layer that signal to market intelligence actually is different process for different investors, as you just laid out here, quant investors and, and discretionary guys. But you also touched upon the traditional capital markets or traditional finance more broadly. What's the biggest difference in interpretation of this data, the journey from raw data to signal to market intelligence between crypto markets and traditional markets? Obviously, lack of standardization maybe is one thing, but what else is different? Equity markets have bonds too, right? There's fundamentals underlying them, right? The company has earnings, it has revenue, it has dividends. And as we've seen with the market correction, like, yeah, maybe in a bull market, tech stocks will trade at 150 times revenue, right? Which doesn't, well, not stocks, but private tech companies, right? But now we see that, you know, hey, when the market starts to correct, 
you know, making money is an important part of running a business. Like, why would you invest in a business that just loses money all the time, right? And so, you know, in, in crypto, that just doesn't exist, right? And I think a lot of people have tried to take, you know, things like PE ratios like that and, and, and tried to bring them to like number of transactions and stuff. I'm kind of a seller on that idea. I think a lot of that is bullshit, to be honest. And I don't think it's back tested. But, you know, with that said, the major difference is we actually have more data in crypto because every single transaction is broadcasted to the blockchain, right? And that just opens up so many opportunities, right? We can, you know, we can see every single transaction that flows to exchanges. We could see everything that projects are doing. We could start to understand user behavior on chain, right? So for example, as a private, if I'm investing in the stock of AOL, I may not understand AOL's usage data, how many people are going to AOL, how long they're interacting with the website, how often they're interacting with the website. But with blockchain data, we can see that, right? If we're looking at, for example, a GameFi project, we're going to want to understand how often are people coming back to those projects? How much are they interacting with that, right? And yeah, there's companies like SimilarWeb, which are great, by the way, and, and we use some of their data. But like, you can actually see all of the transactions on the blockchain. You can see who's interacting with these chains. You can see exactly what they're doing, exactly what the behavior is. And I think we're still just, we're still in the early innings of figuring out what you can actually do with that, right? An example is employer and employee payments, like I talked about before, but there, there are infinite examples, right? For example, understanding among people who hold a particular token, what other assets they hold. So for example, let's take random asset A, right? If random asset A gets hacked and everyone loses all of their money, they may, those people that were holding that asset may have other loans, which means that they're going to be forced to liquidate other assets to pay back those loans, right? Or they're going to look to cash another asset. But on chain, we can see the overlapping ownership between people that hold a number of different assets. And we can then use that data to discern or to determine what else will likely be liquidated or will be sold next, right? And, and so, you know, I think on-chain data actually presents us with, in spite of having no economic fundamentals, it does allow us to understand, you know, these projects at a deeper level and to actually see, by the way, how few of them actually have users, which is another issue. You're right. So you can track obviously the traffic to some of these traditional platforms, right? But even though you can see traffic in real time, although I guess in reality, you see it with certain lag, but that, that doesn't mean that there is actually transaction, right? So there is this concept of conversion, obviously, which you can't really understand just by looking at traffic. But in crypto, you can literally see the transaction which happens. Right? We just need to figure out how much of those transactions are bullshit. One of the things that we're doing, which is quite interesting, is looking at things like cohort analysis, which I think does a really good job at helping to understand whether or not there's bogus transactions, right? Because I want to see users, are they being retained in month one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, twelve when interacting with a particular project, right? I think it's a really interesting concept because you know, are you going to fake activity with a single wallet address every single month ongoing? Yeah, possibly. It's definitely possible, right? But we're just trying to figure out what are ways to, or, or to remove like wallets with dust, right? To remove wallets that have less than a penny, right? You know, a lot of times, if you look at a particular blockchain, more than 90% of the wallets have less than a dollar, right? And are those really users? I don't think so, right? On Twitter, you know, somebody tweets out a pretty graph that's got one line that goes up. But oftentimes there's a lot bigger of a story behind the scenes. And that's what we're really focused on is that's that's really dive into the data because so much of the narratives that are publicly, you know, discussed are just bullshit. 
So it looks like the tie, the platform actually has more cool features than, than the time that we met. So I remember a few months ago, your team did this demo for me at one of these conferences. And I was amazed when they showed me all these different features. But this cohort analysis, for example, I don't remember that I saw that at the time. So it sounds super interesting. That's a maybe good point for my next topic that I wanted to explore with you, Josh. What clusters of analysis? You know, I understand, you know, some of your clients are more interested in the raw data, which they can play with themselves. Most However, of our clients are discretionary, by the way. So they're primarily, but we also do work with quant funds. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. What types of analysis does your customer see on the tie, you know, on chain data, sentiment analysis? Ev everything. I mean, we're really focused on workflow. We're a work. So when people ask us, are we in the data business? I say, no, we're in the workflow business, right? We're mm -hmm. trying to build a platform. And by the way, for anyone who doesn't know or doesn't have context, so, you know, the tie is the leading provider of data to hedge funds and other institutional market participants in crypto. We have a data platform that services over a hundred of the largest, you know, hedge funds, OTC desks, market makers, prime brokers, and a large number of institutional market participants. Our clients go down the list of top 50 traditional hedge funds by market, by, you know, assets under management. A large number of those folks are our clients. And, you know, what we really focus on is building a single platform that unifies the entire market, Right. The, the 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 issue that we set out to solve is the fact that when I go into a hedge funds office, when I go sit down with a trader and they have 40 screens, 40 tabs up on their monitor, right? I'm just like, how could you possibly be operating efficiently, right? You're wasting your time and you're missing signal or you're missing market intelligence, right? Because how are you possibly going to see signal if it's on tab 27 and you've only had time to click through tab one to 23 in the last 15 minutes, right? And, and, in, and in trading and in markets, timing and speed is so, so, so important. And so with the tie, we actually have a single platform that brings everything together. We have sentiment data, on-chain data, news, private company data, research, NFT data, cross-chain data, like derivatives data, you know, everything that, that, that somebody would need to stay on top of the market in a single interface. But what we do, which is so cool and is so novel, and I'm not sure if, if this is something you saw, but we actually allow our clients to bring their own data into the platform. And so imagine on a single screen, not only could you visualize all of the data we have, which was 90% of what, you know, the most sophisticated folks in the space need or 80% of what they need, but they can actually bring in their own data. And that's so important because mm -hmm. if we think about the way that hedge funds are moving or either or any any type of you know large asset owner is moving right yes they are clients of bloomberg yes they are clients of factset they're clients of icon but they're also buying alternative data i'm talking about equities right or other traditional asset classes they're buying alternative data from 20 30 50 100 different vendors right and what they're forced to do is they have you know their own you know, they, they have their subscriptions to Bloomberg, but they're also building their own data terminals in-house. And if we think through workflow efficiency, it doesn't make sense to have to use Bloomberg and your own data, you know, your own data terminal that you built. And so on our platform, our clients can actually do things like write custom Python. And if you wanted to, for example, pipe in one data set, combine it with a data set from the tie, and then bring in a private, you know, for example, database that's only accessible on your own internal IP address, we can actually help you spin up an instance to do that where we can't even see the data. It's only actually accessible to your traders internally at your company. So if we think through the largest funds in the world that have quant teams, trading desks, research teams, right? You know, like VC arms, every single one of those teams needs to look at very, very different information. And so on a single screen, right, on one consolidated dashboard, we let you visualize everything in the same place. 
Super cool. And one thing that you mentioned is is quite interesting for me, Josh, sentiment analysis. I want to double click on that. So how do you build that? So what's the process, right? So Twitter posts, TikTok videos, you mentioned in one of your previous interviews. I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually curious to hear more about that. TikTok videos, Discord messages, Telegram groups, and all, and all that. How do you even weight all these different sort of data points to create or to come up with a sentiment sort of score or however you, how about you guys do it? Yeah. So, I mean, we have a proprietary model to score sentiment where we basically, you know, the problem with some existing sentiment models is that they're not focused on finance and more particularly, they're not focused on crypto, right? With crypto, we have words like HODL and FOMO and, you know, whatever. It's very difficult to take a traditional sentiment model and kind of bring it to crypto because you miss out on the context of this, the stupidity that we, you know, wag me and whatever nonsense. And so when we build sentiment models, we try to account for that. And we basically will score every word and every single message individually, build an overall score for that message, and then basically normalize the data. Like sentiment today on Bitcoin is two standard deviations more positive than it is on an average of the last 20 days. And the reason that we do that it's because it's very difficult to basically look at sentiment on a per asset level because people on Shiba Inu are always going to be more positive than people on Bitcoin because the discussion on Bitcoin is more nuanced than it is on Shiba Inu. But but the way that we look at metrics broadly in the space, right, is we look at them from a comparative lens. And that's true with on-chain data too. Because if we think about financial markets, right, you're not going to look at Nestle stock the same way you're going to look at Microsoft stock. They're very different companies and their comps are very different. You're not going to compare them. You're going to compare Microsoft to Apple, right? And the same thing goes in crypto. We have defined sectors and subsectors that exist within this market. And so why should you look at an NFT platform the same way you look at a GameFi platform, the same way you look at a layer one, the same way you look at a privacy coin, right? All of those coins should be looked at very differently. And when we think about sentiment or social volumes or social conversation, what I care about is how much more social volume does Uniswap have than SushiSwap, right? I don't care about Uniswap's conversations relative to Bitcoin. And so for us, it's really looking at these assets relative to you know one another. I think that, that, that creates much more nuanced discussion. Understood. And I want to hear from you also, how did you conceive the idea of building the tie that I wanted to understand better? But also once you start building this platform, it could easily fall back into just a data provider or even consultancy servicing business. So it is hard to turn this into an actual product and looks like you guys have managed to do it very successfully. But how did you approach that process? How did you manage to do it? I can start with the, how did I conceive the company? You know, the short story is I graduated college in 2017, started working at SSNC Technologies in post-trade settlement, uh, which is, you know, super boring, you know, mid-back office job. And basically, you know, on the side, it was, you know, building quant models to trade equities and day trading crypto. Couldn't figure out why crypto was moving. And the whole concept behind the tie originally was to basically make sense of digital asset markets and to figure out how, you know, why a John McAfee tweet would move the price of one of these things by 50%. Luckily, well, I mean, unluckily for John, you know, who's who's no longer with us, but luckily, you know, the tweets from influencers like him no longer have that same impact in the market. But, you know, over time, it's really always been about how can we, you know, try to make sense of this chaotic, nonsensical market, you know, in terms of products and things like that, you know, I bootstrapped the company initially with about $100,000. It was just me full time when we started, I brought, you know, my co founder, Ben, who's been unbelievable in, in, in you know, unbelievably helpful in, in, in making this business come to life over the last few years. 
But I mean, we were bootstrapped for the first four years of our existence, right? We were bootstrapped from from me, one employee up to 40 employees with that initial $100,000 that we had. And, and, and when you are, you have to be super creative. Right. And you have to you have to find product market fit. And so it wasn't done because of a stroke of genius or anything like that. It was a combination of timing, luck. You know, there's there's not there's no one single factor that makes an entrepreneur successful. Right. Anyone who just tells you I'm successful because I'm a genius is is full of shit. Right. There's so many different factors that go into this. Right. Like, you know, there were other institutional data providers that came out before us. They raised a ton of money, but they were too early. The market wasn't there yet, right? And we kind of got lucky because we had initially made some money licensing data to retail platforms as a way to fund the institutional business. But we basically took a really big bet that if this market is going to continue and it's going to succeed and it's going to exist, the, the funds are going to come into the space. We've basically been obsessed or I've been obsessed over building this product, right? Like to me, this wasn't like a you know, to, to me, you know, we tried and we failed a lot of things. This was really like the final punt, right? It was like, we're going for this. Yeah, maybe in hindsight, it looks great. It looks like a great idea. And we have a very large number of clients and some, you know, amazing clients on the platform. But but it wasn't just a stroke of genius, right? I mean, it was it was so many different things that led to, led to this happening. And, and really being obsessed and not letting it fail, right? It never is one single thing. But I think in the early days, the sales cycle took a lot of education. It still does, by the way. Some of the data points that I'm talking to you about, some of the signals, cohort analysis and and developer movement and what other people, coins people own. And like all these, these are all novel concepts, right? You may, may not have even thought about these things before, right? And so there's a tremendous amount of education. And, and you know, the way that we can really see that is our top 20% of users on our platform spend an average of seven hours a day. Imagine that a trader at our hedge fund is spending seven hours a day on our platform, right? And the way that people, and that's not every user, right? We have a large number of users that use it for 30 minutes. Our average user spends two hours a day. And the difference between a user that spends two hours a day and a user that spends seven hours a day is a user that really understands the power and how to use it. And so it's an ongoing process, right? I think more so than any other company in crypto, we are a white glove business. You can't just go on our website and sign up. You have to get on the phone with us. You have to talk with us. You have to have a dedicated account manager. We, we don't sell to individuals. We only sell to enterprises, right? And so it's really white glove. I mean, we've helped our clients with capital raising, right? So we do cap intro. We've helped our clients find other service providers. So we'll connect them with custodians or prime brokers or fund administrators or anything else. We like to think of ourselves as the Sherpa for our institutional clients in this space, right? And, and you know, our goal is really to take somebody new who's coming. Mean, we obviously work with a large number of the crypto native firms as well. That's the majority of our clients. But, you know, for the first time ever, actually, this month, we've signed more top 100 hedge funds than we've signed crypto hedge funds, which is pretty crazy. And, you know, and, and, and you know, what we basically are doing is, is a tremendous amount of education and knowledge. And it doesn't necessarily take, a, you know, a day or a, or a week to convert these users. Sometimes it takes more time than that. But we're here to guide you through that journey and to really get traditional funds, you know, comfortable with the space. And, and a couple of ways that we do that, by the way, for anyone listening, we have a free research site. It's research.thetata.io. We have unbelievable research. And unlike anyone else in the space, it is 100% free and there are zero ads. So, you know, you can go there, you can access amazing and free research. And, and, and you know, I have a podcast, right? Everything that I do is all around education, right? It's, it's helping people break into the space and get educated. And then once you become a client, it's really working and sitting down with you, 
I will personally go into your office. We have a team, of, we have an amazing team of salespeople that will go into our client's office, right? And sit down with those clients and really get them educated. Because at the end of the day, with us, it's a 10 year, it's a 20 year relationship with the fund, right? We want to be there for the entire existence of the fund. We want to grow with them and we want to be there even beyond that, right? When somebody leaves a fund and, you know, the best message that we get is, hey, I just left this OTC desk that I'm working at. Can you maintain my account until I land a job at another firm, right? Like that, that is how ingrained in our clients' lives we want to be. be and, and that requires a tremendous amount of education. What's the thought process for not going for retail? I think you could offer a lighter version of the tie to retail users. Well, how do you think about that? So we actually, uh, behind the scenes, are a very large licensor of data to retail. People probably don't know it, but we license data to places like interactive brokers, to places like Bybit, to places like AAX, to places like Cointelegraph. So there are actually a large number of platforms that exist in the market that do service retail that use our data, but we are a B2B. So we do B2B and B2B2C. The challenge with a lot of the platforms that try to serve as retail and institutions is that they don't do either well, Right. So, you know, they have things that are too complicated for retail and they have two things that are too simple for institutions and you can't do both well, right? You, you can do one really well. It's very hard to do both really well. And it's also, it's a very different process to service retail traders than it is to service, you know, funds, right? And, you know, we're, we're, I'm obsessed with things like time spent on platform retention, you know, you know, metrics like that. I can't just do that for two different cohort, you know, two different groups of people. And so for us, it's not like we don't think retail should have access to this information. We totally do think they should. And if anyone listening happens to have a retail exchange platform, brokerage, whatever else that is looking for data, we could certainly license a lot of this data as we do with a lot of our other partners. What's the customer mix? So we touched upon a little bit discretion versus quant, but in terms of that profile, but also, you know, sector geography. Yeah. Our, our primary clients are discretionary hedge funds. That's our primary client base, but that's definitely not all of it. And that's maybe that's 50% of our clients. We obviously have quant funds. We have prime brokers. We have OTC desk. We have market makers. We have venture funds. We have investment banks. We have tier one banks. You know, it could be anyone from a research team to an analyst team, to a trading desk, to a quant team. But just like, I don't know if anybody's ever been a user of, 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 you know, a terminal or workstation in traditional markets, and you know what products I'm talking about, right? You use four or 5% of the features on the platform. And the same thing goes with us, right? Our clients aren't going to use 100% of what's available for them. They're going to use four or 5% of the platform. I don't even think every salesperson on my team knows 100% of the features that exist on the platform because there's just so much, right? And we're focused on workflow, right? So when we bring on a venture client, we're, we're, we talk to the venture client, we're like, here, these are the five or 10 or 15 pieces of the tie of SIGDEV, that's the name of our platform, right, of SIGDEV that we think are most helpful for you in your workflow, right? And so that's really kind of how we think about it in terms of things like, you know, size of client base and stuff like that. You know, our, our smallest clients are probably 10 to $20 million funds. We have a few of them, but they go up to hundred multi-hundred billion dollar asset managers and bigger as clients. We have the largest, you know, Go down the list of the top 50 hedge funds by AUM. A large number of those folks are our clients. You know, we work with them. You know, it's it's a big mix, right? It's the crypto natives, it's the traditionals, it's DeFi funds. It's a lot. And in terms of geographically, you know, we're domiciled, you know, our, our headquarters is in New York City. And so naturally, a large number of our clients happen to be in New York City. We're now working on improving our marketing. I think we do product incredibly well. I think we do data incredibly well. I think we haven't done marketing incredibly well. And that's no fault to our team. We didn't have a single marketer until December. We now have six full-time people on our marketing team. You know, Most of them joined in the last month or 
to. And so now it's about, you know, going out and expanding, you know, across geographies. Great. And when you said that four to five percent numbers, uh, as in, you know, people use only that portion of the platform. And when you also talked about the retail side of things, that's what I was thinking. It's almost like, you know, the tie as a platform would be, you know, retail users, individuals would not be able to actually extract the most value. They would have no idea what they were looking at. Right. Absolutely. And that's why we have a dedicated account management team that really works with our clients that sits down and handholds and helps, right? You know, we are we are a white glove service. We're here to help. We're here to help you understand all this information, right? And that's why I said, you know, it's hard to build a platform that services both institutions and retail because you're not fully catering to one's needs. Sure. And we're fully catering to the needs of one of those, you know, markets. Absolutely. And what, what patterns do you see in your customers ask for data across cycles it's not across cycles it just becomes more and more and more and more and more infinitely the market is becoming more sophisticated right you know everyone was asking where are the institutions and you know now they're asking where's you know why isn't crypto moving well it's because their institutions are here and we're now more correlated with traditional assets than we ever were before right and so you know, when when the funds first started coming into crypto, and by the way, I use the term institutions broadly for anyone listening who, you know, yes, institutions traditionally are endowments and pensions and things like that. In crypto, we've kind of conflated the word with uh, funds and, and others, right? But, you know, my point was when a lot of these folks first started coming into crypto, they were trading, you know, Bitcoin options, right? Or they were they were just taking advantage of market inefficiencies. Now they are starting to trade a wider range of assets. We know some of the largest hedge funds in the world are trading on chain on like 30 different blockchains, some of them, right? And so not all of them, but there's a few, there's a small number and they're just becoming increasingly more sophisticated and the questions that we're getting and the requests that we're getting are increasingly more sophisticated. And as we continue to ship so much product and we ship, I mean, it's real. I mean, every week we have new features on the platform. It's actually ridiculous, right? As we ship more and more product, our clients start to realize like, hey, you know, and, and this kind of sucks a little bit, not, you know, being transparent. They're like, okay, you guys aren't just this small startup anymore. You guys actually are this all-in-one platform, which means we can now request every single feature in the entire world. And when you start saying that you're going to build a platform that simplifies workflow and removes the need to have, you know, my goal every single week is to remove one more tab from my client's browser, right? That's the only thing that I care about, right? And when you set that out to be your goal, the demands and the things that people are asking just continue to get larger and larger and larger and larger. And it's an infinite and never ending task, right? Bloomberg continues to add data to the Bloomberg terminal, right? You know, they've been around for 50 years. So this is, you know, we, we, we know that we've set ourselves up to build infinitely, right? This is, it's never going to end. <laughs> I want to switch gears a little bit. So I want to talk about, you know, the culture that you want to build at the tie. People think about culture as, you know, free snacks, free lunch or some perks offered to employees. And, you know, in well-funded startups from early on, you know, that might be the case. But in your case, you bootstrap this company with 100K from zero to 40 people. So how did you approach, you know, culture building with your team? Well, yeah, to clarify, we've raised money since we're now about 80 people on the team. So we, we do have some external capital. But yeah, look, I think it comes from the top, right? You know, we have happy hours at the office. I will mop the floors after, right? You know, we moved into our new office. I clean the toilets, right? It comes from the top, right? It's setting the precedent that I am not too good for any task at the company, right? And, and no one is, right? This is a team. We're building this together and we're here to have fun. I think money is secondary, but but the way that I do business is very much, we don't sell, we build relationships, 
right? The last thing I want is to force a sale down somebody's throat and for them to be uncomfortable. We are a relationship first organization, right? And, and it's all about maintaining the trust, building a relationship, you know, becoming friends with our clients, taking care of them. You know, we don't charge for the white glove service that we offer, right? If we're going to help, you know, introduce you to a major pension or to an endowment or to a sovereign wealth fund, we're not going to charge you anything, right? We're doing that to build goodwill and to build a relationship, right? And the way that we work is really, you know, we're doing this together. Every single person on the team that's full-time has not RSUs, they have options in the company and they have upside in the business. Everyone's incentivized, everyone's aligned, right? We're doing this together, right? And, and you know, for me and, and my co-founder, Ben, neither of us really care about the money. Neither of us are in this for the money. Both of us are actually vegan, and both of us are very, very focused on actually maximizing impact after, you know, and, and I don't know when we exit this business in five years, 10 years, whenever it is, right? My whole goal is, you know, I think that in life, I can make the biggest impact by making as much money as possible, right? Like I'm a little scrawny, tiny guy. I'm not going to go build houses. I'm not going to make an impact in that way. But if I can make, you know, a large amount of money and have fun doing it, that's how I can then take that money. And for me, I care about animal causes, right? That's but I care about a lot of other things. That's one of the major causes that I care about. How can I basically, you know, use this as a trampoline to make as much of an impact as possible? And so for me, I think it comes from the top. It's setting the culture of no one's too good for anything. This is 100% a team effort. No one person is the reason for the success of this business, right? We're doing this together, right? And it's not money over everything, right? It's it's build relationships. It's do the right thing. It's not take advantage of people. There's so many easy ways to make money. We could launch a coin. We don't need a fucking coin. Launching a coin is an easy and cheap way to make money, right? Utility tokens don't make any sense, right? There's no reason to do that, right? Maybe it means we're going to go slower, right? And it maybe it means that our revenue isn't going to be as fast as other people, but I am obsessed with SaaS recurring high gross margin revenue with relationships that are long lasting where there's not a lot of churn, right? And so we're very focused on that and everyone's aligned. And by the way, we share everything with our employees. We share our roadmap. We share what we're going to do. We'll share our financial status, what our runway looks like when we're profitable, when we're not profitable. And it's really setting that culture. And I give a lot of credit to everyone on my team. I mean, we have almost zero arguments at the company and there are no politics. The thing that you just said last, I think transparency is, in my personal view, it is one of the most critical elements of that culture building exercise in a company setting. We Early also have the... free snacks, by the way, too. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> They're um, all vegan, by the way, in case anybody's wondering. That that's excellent too. So you earlier said the goal looks like building infinitely, but in that long-term goal, what are the shorter term milestones that you laid out in your roadmap? How how do you think about that, you know, in the nearer term? Yeah, I mean, we have a really big announcement coming out in a few weeks, but really it's moving from just data into full workflow, right? As I mentioned earlier, my goal is to be the platform that a client uses from the time they wake up to the time they go to sleep. And people use a lot more than just data, right? And so you can kind of think about where we're going next, right? And the different opportunities and, and things that we're kind of focused on. And, and our first step in that maturation in that process is, is going to go live, you know, quite soon. But yeah, we have a large number of things that we're super excited about and that are coming out. Uh, we don't post about all of them, by the way, online, because we don't necessarily need to give people ideas, but we post a lot of them on our Twitter. <laughs> I think you gave a few alpha already on this episode. So I'm happy for you to keep this big announcement to yourself for now. I'm not going to push. But in the long term, I don't know if you're happy with this tagline of, you know, the terminal for crypto or Bloomberg for crypto. What's your longer term vision? What do you want to have built five to 10 years from now? Yeah, look, it's, it's, 
I don't think we're Bloomberg. I don't think we're the terminal, right? I, but I, look, there's also things that we've built that look like S&P, right? There's things that we've built that look like Moody's. There are things that we've built that look like FactSet, right? And our goal is to be the information services provider for crypto, right? And that manifests itself in so many different ways, whether it be in servicing hedge funds, servicing larger asset managers, servicing, you know, the, the issuers in the space, right? You know, you know, there are a large number of services that are sold to issuers in equity markets, right? The, this Verizon will buy data from, from lots of different companies and will work with, with data and information businesses, right? And so there's so many different types of things that we can do, right? But it's when people think about information and data in equities, right? You know, you think about S&P, you think about Bloomberg, you think about FactSet, you think about, you know, Refinitiv and all these different businesses. When you think about data and crypto, we want people to think about the tie. That's really what we're trying to build. And it's not going to be an exact Bloomberg. It's not going to be an exact S&P. It's not going to be an exact any of these things, right? It's taking the lessons from these different businesses, the areas that they've done right, and it's figuring out how to make those applicable to digital assets. This has been a, a great conversation. Thank you very much for your time. But my closing question for everyone is, what are you most curious about these days and what are you doing to learn more about it? What am I most curious about these days? That's a great question. I'm going to give you not the most exciting answer, um, but I'm a big Yankee fan. And so I'm just watching every game. I'm not really necessarily learning anything. You know, I spend so much time obsessing over my job. I'm obsessed. I think that's very clear, right? Like, I love this. It's not the money. I just have genuine fun. And so the things that I'm really curious about, I'm really understanding all the different businesses and all the different ways that traditional you know, front offices are serviced, right? In the different products and solutions, right? But here's what I focus on. I'm a big baseball fan. So spending a lot of time watching the Yankees these days. And and also just, you know, just, you know, I, I because I spend so much time thinking, I like to not think. And so, you know, I've been, wa I watch a lot of dumb show. I love dumb TV. And so, by the way, if anyone who hasn't seen it, the new season of Indian matchmaking is, is hysterical. It's really great. Um, I, I, I just don't have the most intellectual answer here, but, you know. Josh, thanks a lot again for coming to the Curious Learners. It's been such a great discussion and I learned a lot. Thank you and speak soon. Thanks for having me on.